You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Every year, tens of millions of people go through Denver International Airport, making it the fifth busiest in the United States and in the top 20 busiest of the world. That's a lot of bodies to get from hither to yon, so the airport relies heavily on the Automated Guideway Transit System, a people mover that connects all of the midfield concourses with the South Terminal, providing the only passenger access to concourses B and C. And in 1995, a day that will live in infamy for staff and passengers alike, that system failed. They call it Black Sunday. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I said to myself the other day, I said, you know what would make a really good topic? Days with colorful nicknames. Surely there's enough of those out there to write about. In what they call a good problem to have, there are in fact way too many. Most of them are black whatever. So I'm starting with a few black Sundays. And if you think it's a fruitful area of discussion, I'll make it a series. Maybe just once a month though. I'd space them out because, as you don't hear about the planes that land, you don't call a day black whatever if everything was just pleasant and chill. As such, today's episode has two heavy topics and a lighter one packed with schadenfreude. So, you know, gauge how you're feeling today before you listen. I don't mind waiting. It's not how long you wait, it's who you're waiting for. We're going to go heavy, heavy, light as decided by folks in our Facebook group, The Brainiac Break Room, where anybody who wants to can share whatever funny or clever thing they find. And the same goes with the Your Brain on Facts subreddit, both of which you can reach from yourbrainonfacts.com slash social. And speaking of social, on social media, people are starting to post pictures of themselves wearing their Russian warship Go F Yourself t-shirts, raising money for the Ukraine Red Cross, yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch. Thanks to those people specifically who have bought merch, and I want to send a sweeping cloud of thanks to people in other countries who are taking in Ukrainian refugees. On the topic of refugees, there was a time when hundreds of thousands of Americans were refugees in their own country. During World War I, wheat prices rose and farming in the open prairies of the Great Plains was an attractive proposition. Homesteaders and farmers set up shop, ripping up or tilling under the native grasses that had evolved as part of that ecosystem with long roots that both held on to lots of soil and reached down far enough to get water way below the surface, allowing it to better survive in drought conditions. 
But we don't like to eat those grasses, so they were replaced with shallow-rooted wheat. This wasn't so much of an issue until 1931, when the rain just stopped coming, leaving instead a severe, widespread drought that lasted a decade and eventually killed thousands of square miles of wheat fields. No other crops survived either, so there was nothing to feed livestock. Without living plants to hold onto the topsoil, it just blew away. The prairie winds became a sandstorm, and people's livelihoods were now threatening their lives. It got so bad, the dust clouds actually reached the East Coast. At the same time, they had this depression on, a real nuisance, you've probably seen the movies. Grapes of Wrath, Of Mice and Men, the other version of Of Mice and Men, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, the only time I ever enjoyed George Clooney, and dozens more. The price of wheat, and people lost their jobs left, right, and center. Many families were left with no choice but to pile whatever they had left onto the family car and follow rumors of work sometimes all the way to California, where, even though they were regular old Americans, they were treated like foreign invaders. And that's just a quick, broad-stroke Cliff Notes overview. But boy, do I want to re-watch Carnival for the fourth time. Love me some Clancy Brown. <laughs> I still would. But we're here to talk about one day, a Black Sunday, brought on by a black blizzard. That is, as the name implies, a blizzard made up of dirt so thick it blocks out the sun. Bonus fact, it can also be made up of locusts, grasshoppers, and other insects. Fourteen black blizzards hit in 1932, 38 in 33, and so on, up to 70 in 1937. The worst of them hit Kansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Texas. The storms became so frequent that people learned to discern the origin of the dust by its color. Brown dust storms came from Kansas or Nebraska, gray from Texas, and red from Oklahoma. The people who had not yet left or who couldn't or wouldn't leave did whatever they could to prevent themselves from breathing in all this airborne dust. Cloth masks were the least of it. They'd hang wet sheets over doorways and seal up windows with a paste ironically made of wheat flour because that's what they could get their hands on. They'd rub petroleum jelly into their nostrils to try to trap the dirt. Anything to try to prevent the brown plague, dust pneumonia. Constant inhalation of dust particles killed hundreds of people, chief among them babies and young children, and it sickened thousands more. 1934 was the single worst drought year of the last millennium in North America. Temperatures soared, exceeding 100 degrees every day for weeks on much of the southern plains, absolutely baking the soil. When spring of 35 rolled around, there was a lot more dry dirt ready to be thrown into the air. After months of these brutal conditions, the wind finally started to die down on the morning of April 14th, 
and people jumped at the chance to escape their homes. Hope springs eternal, and people thought maybe it was finally over. It was, of course, not over. It was just getting started. The worst storm anyone had ever seen was standing in the wings waiting for its cue. A cold front down from Canada crashed into warm air over the Dakotas. In a few hours, the temperature dropped more than 30 degrees, and the wind returned in force, creating a dust cloud that grew to hundreds of miles wide and thousands of feet high as it headed south. Reaching its full fury in southeastern Colorado, southwestern Kansas, and the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles, it turned a sunny spring day completely dark. Birds, mice, and jackrabbits fled for their lives. Have you ever heard the sound one frightened rabbit makes? I would not want to be on the ground while all this was happening. Domestic animals like cattle that couldn't get to shelter were blinded and even suffocated by the dust. People who were out on the road had to take refuge in their cars for hours. Other residents hunkered down anywhere they could, from tornado shelters and fire stations to under beds if a bed was the closest thing you had to safety. Folk singer Woody Guthrie, then 22, who rode out the storm in his Texas home, recalled that, quote, you couldn't see your hand before your face. Inspired by proclamations from some of his companions that the end of the world was actually at hand, he composed the song, So Long It's Been Good to Know Ya. A dust storm hitting it hit like thunder. It dusted us over and it covered us under. Blocked out the traffic and blocked out the sun. Straight for home, all the people did run, singing so long. It's been good to know ye, so long. It's been good to know ye, so long. It's been good to know ye. This dusty old dust is a getting my home. I've got to be drifting along. Guthrie would end up writing a number of songs about the experience. I mean, if you're going to go through something like that, might as well make something out of it. Like how in my voiceover business, I say I provide lightning-fast corporate voiceovers, because I one time got gently struck by lightning. The Black Sunday storm dragged on for hours, and people's wits began to fray. One woman reportedly thought that the merciless howling wind blotting out the sun was the start of the biblical end of days, to the point that she actually contemplated killing her child to spare them from being collateral damage in a war between heaven and hell. By all accounts, it was the worst black blizzard of the Dust Bowl, displacing 300,000 tons of topsoil. That would be enough to cover a square area half a mile or 750 meters on each side a foot deep. Everybody remembered where they were on Black Sunday, said Pamela Riney Kernberg, a history professor at Iowa State University and author of Rooted in Dust, Surviving Drought and Depression in Southwestern Kansas. For people on the Southern Plains, it was one of those defining experiences like Pearl Harbor or Kennedy's assassination. The Black Sunday storm blew its dust all the way to the East Coast, 
causing streetlights to be needed during the day in Washington, D.C., and even coating the decks of ships in dust out in the Atlantic Ocean. The next day, as the remnants of the storm blew out into the Gulf of Mexico, an Associated Press reporter filed a story in which he referred to, quote, life in the dust bowl of the continent, coining the phrase that would encapsulate a phenomenon, a place, and a time. Inspired by the myriad tales of suffering that proliferated in Black Sunday's wake, and finally personally inconvenienced by the dust, the federal government began paying farmers to take marginal lands out of production. It also incentivized improved agricultural practices, such as contour plowing and crop rotation, which reduced soil loss by 66%. By then, however, many families had given up hope, and a quarter to a third of the most affected people fled the Southern Plains never to return. But in the win column, thanks to these better practices, the massive black blizzards never returned either. While our first and last story today is from the U.S., Black Sunday isn't exclusively an American phrase. My one sister's adoptive country of Australia has had their fair share as well. Like Black Sunday 1926, an especially bad day during an already disastrous brush fire season. 60 people were killed and 700 injured. Or Black Sunday 1955, again due to fires across southern Australia. 60 fire brigades and a thousand volunteers were needed to get the flames under control. Thankfully that time, only two people were killed. On the far side of the elemental wheel is the story of Bondi Beach, minutes east of Sydney, on a February Sunday in 1938. Sydney had recently celebrated its 150th birthday, or sesquicentenary, with a big old parade and events planned to last well into April. The city was a bustle with visitors, many of whom joined the locals spending the hot sunny day at Bondi Beach. The sky was clear, but the sea was already acting a fool. A large swell was hitting the coast, and lifeguards at Bondi were busy all day Saturday pulling people from the heavy surf, as many as 74 in one hour. Despite the heavy seas, beach inspectors gave a Mayor of Amity-approved thumbs-up to opening the beach on Sunday, the 6th of February. Beachgoers started coming, and coming, and coming. The morning started out relatively quiet for the lifeguards, but business got brisk, even as they tried to wave the swimmers toward safer parts of the beach. As the tide moved out, more and more people ventured out to a sandbar that ran parallel to the beach. The crowd had grown to 35,000, enjoying the surf and sand. Extra surf reels were brought out to the beach as they tried to keep pace with the ballooning battery of bathers. A life-saving reel is an Australian invention that is brilliant in its simplicity. It's a giant reel of rope with a belt or harness at one end in a portable stand with hand cranks. The lifeguard, and yes, I am going to persist in saying the American lifeguard rather than the Australian lifesaver, would attach the harness or belt to himself 
and swim out to the struggling swimmer or surfer. He could then put the rescuee in the harness or belt, and a lifeguard on the beach would reel them in. The lifeguard in the water either accompanies that person back or goes on to rescue someone else. A boat crew out in the water was dropping buoys to mark out a race course for weekly races held by and for the Bondi Surf Bathers Lifesaving Club. Basically like volunteer firefighters, but lifeguards. This would turn out to be as fortuitous as when a woman had a heart attack on a transatlantic flight, but there were 15 cardiologists on board going to a conference. At about 3 p.m., two duty patrols were changing shifts at the Bondi Surf Club, and some 60-plus club members were mingling around, waiting for race time. Suddenly, five tremendous waves crashed high onto the beach, one right after the other, in such quick succession that the water could not receive from one wave before the next one hit. Even though most bathers were only standing in water up to their waists, they were tumbled under the water and pummeled by following waves. And then the water receded. What goes up must come down, and what goes in must go back out. The backwash, which, yes, really is the term for water on the beach finding its level and returning to the ocean, swept people who'd been nowhere near the water, including non-swimmers who never planned to get wet, into the ocean. The people on the sandbar were swept even further out. The club recorded 180 people, but news reports at the time put the figure as high as 250. 250 people, now in need of rescue at once, panicking and thrashing in the surf. All hands from the Bondi Surf Bathers Lifesaving Club leapt into action. Beltmen took every available line out. Many went in the water without belts to help struggling bathers. Lifeguard Carl Jeppesen was among those who simply dove into the surf to save people without benefit of a reel and he managed to save at least six that we know of. One of the main problems the lifeguards faced was not a lack of hands, but too much unskilled help from the crowd on the beach. One beltman, George Pinkerton, was dragged under the water by members of the public trying to haul him in, and he ended up needing medical attention. Once the lines had been cleared of do-gooders and a certain amount of order restored, the lifeguards could get on with the job. Thankfully, there were people who could help. I was co-opted into the situation because I was a strong swimmer and they put me on a line, said Ted Lever, just 16 at the time, a member of the Bondi Amateur Swimming Club who was soon invited to join the renowned Lifesaving Club. Even with more hands, the distressed greatly outnumbered the rescuers the Beltmen often found themselves swamped by swimmers seeking assistance. Some had to physically fight their way through people to get to others who were in greater danger. One Beltman spoke of being seized by five men who refused to let go. I was trying to take the belt to a youngster who was right at the back, but I didn't get the chance. As I went by, dozens yelled for help and tried to grab me. I told them to hang on to the rope as soon as I got it out. I didn't think I had a chance when they all came at me. 
One grabbed me around the neck, two others caught me by one arm, another around the waist and another one seized my leg. I hit the man who had me around the neck, managed to get him in the chin and he let go. I had to do it, but for that I would have drowned myself. Now this whole time, the surf boat was still out there after laying the buoys, but the crew were completely unaware of the chaos. Nobody thought to signal them, but even if they had, the boat could have posed a danger to the people in the water with overactive waves and rip currents. It's difficult to tell exactly how many people had to be rescued during the course of a chaotic 20 minutes. Rescued swimmers were brought up the beach by the dozens, about 60 needing to be resuscitated to one degree or another. Sadly, five people would die, including one man who died after saving a girl. American doctor Marshall Dyer, there on vacation, helped to resuscitate swimmers. He said, I have never seen, nor expect to see again, such a magnificent achievement as that of your lifesavers. It is the most incredible work of love in the world. And there were, inarguably, many heroes on Bondi Beach that day. But the official position of the Lifesavers Club afterwards was that, quote, everyone did his job. Instead of recognizing individuals for their efforts, the Surf Lifesaving Association of Australia recommended the entire club for a special award of merit. Okay, the sad stuff is over. Let's pick up the tone, starting with a new review. Thank you to Ness underscore A for leaving a review on Podchaser, which is a great alternative if your app doesn't do reviews. They say, cannot recommend this podcast enough. Wyboff is in my top three favorite podcasts and my preferred one to listen to while driving. Driving isn't my favorite activity, but Moxie keeps me engaged, motivated, and alive. I started listening almost four months ago and just recently caught up. Thanks so much for sharing your rabbit holes of research and for all your thoroughness, Moxie. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Ness underscore A. Sometimes it's remarkable and I just have to stop and think about how many people like the show enough to listen week after week. I mean, we did just hit one million downloads. I forgot to mention it when it happened. And I didn't get a screen cap of it happening exactly. But hey, one million downloads. And that's no click farms, no paid advertising, nothing. So if you want thousands of people to hear your opinion on the Your Brain on Facts podcast, book or audiobook, leave us a review. I say us like there's a mouse in my pocket. I'm also grateful for people who share the show. It's still the best way to help an indie podcast. And you can do it as easily as sharing what I post on social media. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie Labouche, as well as the supporters at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, who get early ad-free episodes, bonus content, surprise swag, and more. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's only a kick. A jump. 
a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. After two years of COVID restrictions, people are going on vacations and theme parks are opening up. And for a lot of folks, that means they're going to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. But when the park opened on July 17, 1955, the now ubiquitous nickname was downright ironic. Disney employees who survived that day called it Black Sunday. Basically, it was like the episode of The Simpsons where they went to Itchy and Scratchy World. Opening day was meant to be a relatively intimate affair, by invitation only. Not for every Tom, Dick, and Harry, or I guess Huey, Dewey, and Louie. If you were friends and family of the employees, members of the press, and celebrities, you got a ticket in the mail. If you were everybody else, you bought a counterfeit ticket. The park was only expecting 15,000 people. 28,000 showed up, nearly double what they were prepared for. Well, what they meant to be prepared for. More on that in a sec. The counterfeit tickets might have even been better than the legitimate ones, as the legit tickets were only good for half the day, morning or afternoon, to try to spread the workload out more evenly. The morning tickets had an end time of 2.30 p.m., when, assumably, they figured people would see that and say, Oh, bother, my time is up. Guess I'll leave then. Nobody did that. One is stunned. You buy a ticket for a theme park, you're going to be there all day. So the morning people were still milling about when the afternoon people started showing up. And then there were the people who just started sneaking in. One enterprising self-starter set a ladder against the outside fence and charged people five bucks to climb it. That's present buying power of about $50, which this person made many times over for schlepping along a ladder that I like to think he nicked from the neighbor's yard. A lot of things were not ready on opening day, within the park and without. The Santa Ana freeway outside turned into a seven-mile-long parking lot. The opening of the park essentially shut a freeway down. There were so many people waiting for so long. According to some media reports, there was rampant relief on the side of the road, and even in the Disney parking lot. It probably looked like the video for Everybody Hurts if folks couldn't hold their water. If you just flash back to where your life was when that video came out, be sure to stretch before you mow the lawn and don't forget your big sun hat. Today, you might think of a Disney park as being meticulously manicured and maintained. Opening day, not so much. Walt Disney had tried to have everything ready, hustling people to work faster, but there's only so much you can do. So there were bare patches of ground, some areas of bare ground that had been painted green, weeds where the lawns and flowers were meant to be, some of which were given little signs with their Latin name on them to make it look like they were meant to be there. Turn a liability into an asset, that's what I always say. Returning to the topic of bathrooms, there was a plumber strike going on during construction. Walt basically had to decide between working water fountains or working toilets. 
Florida heat notwithstanding, he chose to have the toilets working, and I'd say that was probably the right call. Besides, if you've ever played Theme Park Tycoon or any game like it, you know that a lack of water fountain means people have to pay for drinks now. Or they would, if the park's concessions had been fully stocked. The overabundance of people meant that the food and drink sold out completely in just a couple of hours. Oh, and did I mention it was literally 100 degrees freedom, 38 Celsius that day? The asphalt that had been finished so close to opening was sticking to people's shoes. Some even claimed that their shoes had gotten completely stuck to the pavement of Main Street USA, where a lot of people spent their time because the rides, kind of a big detail at a theme park, also were not ready. A number of rides like Peter Pan's Flight, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Submarine Voyage, and the famous Flying Dumbo either broke down immediately or never opened at all. Disneyland's Black Sunday actually lasted for a couple of weeks. A stagecoach ride in Frontierland permanently closed when it became clear that they were about as safe against rollovers as a Bronco II with a roof rack full of building supplies. 36 cars in Autopia crashed due to aggressive driving on the part of patrons. Starting to wonder if Disney ever met people. Ironically, the ride was designed to help children learn to be respectful drivers. There were a number of live animals in a circus attraction, which proved retrospectively inadvisable when a tiger and a panther escaped, ending in a furious death struggle on Main Street. Now that's an e-ticket attraction. We're talking eight years before the Jungle Book and we got Bagheera and Shere Khan right there. Like the park, the Mark Twain Riverboat was over capacity on opening day, with over 500 people cramming onto the boat, causing it to jump its tracks and sink into the mud. It took about half an hour to get it back on the rail, an eternity while you're sitting there in 100-degree heat in the middle of your theme park day. And as soon as it pulled up to the landing, everybody rushed to one side of the boat to get off and tipped it over. Thankfully, the water was shallow and there were no injuries. There was, however, a gas leak inside Sleeping Beauty's castle, which could have been a serious problem and prompted the closing of Adventureland, Fantasyland, and Frontierland for a few hours because, you know, whoopsie-daisy, Sleeping Beauty's castle is on fire. Well, it was trying to catch fire. Reports vary as to how much flame there actually was. Walt was so busy handling the press, he didn't even learn about the fire until the following day. That's how chaotic things were. Walt Disney was a shrewd and clever businessman, so he thought, hey, I'm opening this park. Let's turn it into a big live television event. He partnered with ABC, which had also helped provide nearly a third of his funding, in return for which Disney hosted a weekly TV show about what people could expect to see in Disneyland for the year before it opened. So on opening day, Walt hosted a 90-minute live TV special with Art Linkletter and future president Ronald Reagan. 90 million people tuned in to see The Happiest Place on Earth. And those kind of ratings are no mean feat in the 1950s. The cameras showed all of the fun and excitement of Disneyland, completely obscuring all the disasters and unhappiness that went along with it. 
But if you think the live broadcast was going to go off without a hitch, you may have some pattern recognition problems. It was riddled with technical difficulties. Parkgoers kept tripping over camera cables that snaked all over the ground. There were on-air flubs, mics that didn't work, people who forgot their mic did work, and unexpected moments caught on camera, such as co-host Bob Cummings caught making out with one of the dancers. This is not so much a show as it is a special event, Art Linkletter said during the broadcast. The rehearsal went about the way you'd expect if you were covering three volcanoes all erupting at the same time and you didn't expect any of them. So from time to time, if I say, we take you now by camera to the snapping crocodiles in Adventureland, and instead somebody pushes the wrong button and we catch Irene Dunn adjusting her bustle on the Mark Twain, don't be too surprised. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. The people mover system in the Denver airport is basically critical for all of its functions. It's very reliable, but on April 26, 1998, a major system failure took place. A routing cable in the train tunnel was damaged by a loose train wheel, cutting the entire system's power. It was out of service for about seven hours, which in airport years is like six months. United Airlines, Denver's biggest airline, which operates a large hub out of Concourse B, reported that about 30% of all of their flights and 5,000 passengers were affected by the failure. And if you don't know why this is enough for employees to label that day Black Sunday, you've clearly never worked customer service. Remember, you can always find the script and the source links for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Anybody else have uh, sound gardens fell on black days stuck in their head because of what I chose to call the episode? My husband actually got to meet Chris Cornell. He said it was really nice. I should probably stop recording now. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.